Welcome, everybody. This is Nick Fletcher, and this is the SRS edition of Interview with a PD Pod. Today, my guest is my very close friend, Sukin Shah. Uh, Sukin probably needs no introduction, although interestingly, when I asked him to do this podcast, he didn't think that he had that much to add, but as you'll see, he has a tremendous amount. He is professor and department head at AI DuPont. He has been in practice there for 22 years. He is the head of the IPOS this year and has a tremendous schedule, and he'll talk about that a little bit at the end of the podcast. And he really has been paramount to so many areas of POSNA as well as the SRS and has leadership roles uh, in both. He is on the board of the Harm Study Group. He has countless publications and uh, is, is just a tremendous mentor, role model, and friend to me. So I was very excited to have him today. Sue can actually ask to do the interview slightly differently rather than me just interviewing him. He wanted to ask me some questions. And so this is sort of a, a little bit of a deviation from my normal podcast, uh, but I think it turned out quite well. It actually also dovetails in nicely with what the uh, other podcast uh, has done this month, focusing on wellness, because we spend a bunch of time talking about things like diet, sleep, or lack thereof, which when you're doing at SRS in Sweden is a little bit difficult to come by. And uh, I think it, it was just a, a nice conversation overall. So thank you for your support of this podcast. Thank you, of course, to Carter Clement and the rest of the podcast team for their tireless efforts to edit all of my imperfections on the podcast. And I look forward to seeing people in a couple of months at IPOS. Enjoy. Sukin, I'm going to uh, welcome you into the podcast today. This is uh, a first for me because you're going to ask me some questions, which I've not had to do before. It's also a first because all of the previous podcasts that I've done have been at POSN-related things, but we're at SRS in Stockholm, and uh, I'm really excited to have you here. Well, I'm excited to be here, Nick, and as you know, I'm a uh, longtime listener of the pod. First-time caller, First sort of. First-time <laughs> caller. Um, this is a great service um, you and the podcast committee is doing for our membership, and um, I'm really just happy to contribute. Appreciate it. Good. Well, so you and I had, had talked ahead of time, and for the listener who is used to sort of a life story of the uh, interviewee, this is going to be a little bit different because we've known each other long enough, and I think we're going to have a little bit of back and forth, but because not everybody does spine, so not everybody may know you. A little bit of background, you're originally from where? Uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. Right. And you are uh, currently in, in Delaware um, at AI DuPont, and you had gotten there after doing your fellowship there as well, right? Yeah, I guess I would be um, considered uh, sort of the older generation inbred type of philosophy, where um, I was fortunate to train close to where I grew up. I went to medical school at Jefferson. I did my residency at Jefferson. And um, I also stayed on um, at the DuPont Institute, which was what it was called at the time, because um, I knew that the, the practice there was phenomenal, the teaching was phenomenal, and the training would be phenomenal. Um, and, you know, to go elsewhere and be apart from my wife um, just seemed like a pretty difficult proposition, which I know people do all the time, but... Uh, didn't necessarily cross my mind that, that that could work well. And I do have to say, I don't have any regrets. One of the reasons we couldn't just pick up and leave for a year is that uh, she was she was an attorney at the time. And when you have take the bar in a certain state, it's not very portable. So to go to Texas or California or Massachusetts or wherever for a year just 
you know, wasn't going to be an option for her to work. So for her sake, um, we, uh, we stayed and the rest, I guess, is history. It's history. Yeah. So, and, and how did you end up in peds and specifically in sort of peds spine? Well, what got me into peds was, was probably, um, exposure to it as a resident through Peter Pizzatillo. I would say he was a formative role model for me on the PEDS side, but he was practicing at Jefferson at the time. The patient population was great. We also didn't know a lot about the problems. I remember giving grand rounds on Perthes disease where we didn't know anything about it and giving lectures on DDH where we didn't know anything about it. When you delve into these problems, so many of them were idiopathic and scoliosis is still idiopathic. Naturally, I liked at the time being able to do everything, which certainly has changed in our field. But there was also a big draw to spine with very formative mentors in Todd Albert and Alex Vaccaro and Dick Rothman, who used to be a spine yeah. surgeon prior to being a hip surgeon. I think what my residency taught me the most was a stepwise fashion to approach surgery as a meticulous stepwise sequence of events where you can anticipate deviating from those steps, but the steps are always the steps. And that's how I try to teach surgery now. It's a really, I think, unique way to, to approach it. And, and it's why probably spine, you know, works for a lot of us in the peds field. I mean, I think that having the opportunity, especially before, for the first couple of years of practice, I did, you know, a fair amount of like tumor and things like that. That and they're pretty unpredictable. And I think one of the great parts about spine is that I agree. You know, you can take a VCR and it's really just a component of steps, and and you you know you you work through the steps, which I think when you're starting out, understanding that helps decrease some of the angst that goes along with a big procedure because you just sort of you know take care of one step, and there, like you said, there may be deviations, but then you've got a workflow for that as well. So I think that's, that's true. And um, I would say uh, adolescent idiopathic scoliosis is very much a procedure that can be taught because the patient is homogeneous. The procedure is more similar than different from patient to patient. And you have, you have certain steps that you always do. Um, and there can be deviations and customization of care as in any procedure. But um, if, you make, if you make that the prototype of how to teach someone spine surgery, you can dial it up for a VCR or dial it down for something much simpler. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay. And, and you've been there how long now? 22 years. 22 years. Okay. So one of the things that, that we had wanted to get into a little bit was sort of on the essence of how do you make something like that last for 22 years? So it's a relatively high stress um, environment and there are a lot of opportunities for burnout for, you know, sort of taking the wrong path with, within your own either mental or physical well-being. And so I'm curious because we were on a webinar last month, what your what, what do you think are some of the most valuable things that have helped you sustain that career over time with, with regards to your own personal health? Well, before um, I talk about myself, I think I should talk about the support around me. Um, first of all, I was hired by Richard Bowen, uh, a very nurturing uh, man, faith-driven, uh, supportive, always smiling very generous. And then uh, Will McKenzie, who's been very supportive of my career and basically like rocket fuel for whoever wants to, you know, achieve greatness in pediatric orthopedic surgery. So I've had very supportive leadership in a very supportive environment, you know, in a suburban setting, 
Uh, you talked about burnout and how to lower stress. Coming into work every day is great. We see several different species of trees and lots of green grass and landscaping in a very suburban environment from the start of your day. And at the end of your day, kind of takes you back to things that are important. And my family is also very critical. So uh, Sheila has supported virtually every decision in my career except for traveling fellowship. And not only have I gotten a lot of parental support, but I have to give props to my in-laws. They've been amazing through this whole process, and I couldn't have done half of what I did without their support at home for both my wife and Which is funny because now your kids are off and gone, but I'm sure that the support has been unwavering yeah. throughout. Yeah, yeah. I, guess, I think they're having trouble realizing the fact that we can now support that. Yep, yep. So I'm curious then that you say this. So you seem as though you're a pretty intentional guy, although when I started, and, and I try to be intentional about sort of my actions now in this area, but when I started, I think a lot of stuff was just happening around me. And in retrospect, there was a lot of mentoring that I think probably went unnoticed by me. So I'm sure at the beginning, when you when Richard was mentoring you at the beginning, it was just you know, osmosis, right? That you were being mentored. But at what point did you start looking at that as formal mentoring? Or maybe you did right from the beginning. You know, I guess some of these things didn't have labels back then. You know, you identified with role models, you tried to emulate them, you did things that you liked that you could assimilate and probably took uh, ideas from multiple people and tried to make them your own. The thing about being intentional about it, I don't know if that sounds as good. It also opens your, yourself up to disappointment. I think what's also under-recognized is luck. I've been extremely lucky um, in the right place at the right time, perhaps. But then when you're prepared, you know, that cliche about um, being successful in that vein. So you ha- you can't discount luck and you can't discount external mentors, allyship and sponsorship. And some people don't know the difference necessarily between mentorship and sponsorship. Sponsorship is more people bringing you up or volunteering you for that committee chair or saying, hey, I think Nick can do a great job on that. And that other person might be, well, I don't know Nick, but I certainly know that you know a good judge of character and you get that position or that committee chair and then you make the best of it. So I've had um, external, uh, I've had excellent external mentorship in folks like Peter Newton and Randy Betts and Paul Sponseller. And you'll recognize that there are harm study group members and being in the room with, with those people has just been really influential to my career. And you can imagine that, oh, you know, Randy's up the street from you, Paul's down the street from you. But think about how gracious and generous they were to develop me as potential competition. Um, but certainly uh, it, it wasn't like that. Yeah. So it's interesting. So how, like, cause you didn't train under, uh, Paul and you didn't train under Peter. Um, and, uh, I'm sure you've known Randy for a while, but like, how did that get started? How did that mentorship start? Was, uh, you know, harms is something that your center, I don't believe was in before you started. Right. I mean, no, it's really it wasn't. New. you're right. I think I just identified those folks as really amazing thinkers and wanted to learn more from them. And so we just fostered, um, a mentor mentee relationship, which now is certainly a friendship and um, a collegial uh, collaboration as well. So I've been really fortunate to be a part of that. So uh, we both teach fellows and fellows are sort of homegrown mentees, if you will. I mean, you know, the fellows that I've had still reach out to me all the time. 
but I'm sure that you have people who come up to you, especially with your role with an IPOS uh, in particular now, which is is sort of like the top of the top in terms of a mentorship program. It seems that it, it breeds that. How do you foster mentees and how do you bring them along who aren't within your program, who you don't know, who just walk up to you and say, you know, hey, I'd like to, to talk to you more. How does that how does that work? Well, I think it can be organic. People just coming up to you and, and think about how much courage that takes to approach someone who's clearly got somewhere else to be. That takes a lot of courage. And I recognize that. And I really have to say, wow, uh, let me stop. Let me give this person some time and intention and find out what they need. And hopefully I can help them. If I can't directly help them, I'll try to connect them with someone who can. Taking their contact information and, and maybe following up with an email or a phone call later if they need a, um, a fellowship or they want to do something on a research project. It can be anything, right? Um, and so I try to find out what they need and, and how I can help them. But you have to make that time. And we're all really busy. But just think about your several minutes makes a massive difference in their life and their next step in their career, which for us, okay, it might be late to a meeting. But the difference that it makes for that person is pretty profound. So I try to be much more generous with my time and at least engage them to the point that I can. Yeah, I, and, and I'm going to flatter you for a second, but I remember very much coming into Harms and not knowing you particularly well. And that stood out to me that I think that it's a big group full of very big, busy people. And you, I think from the beginning, were, were incredibly gracious with your time. And I mean, I remember having cocktails at uh really i think it was the first weekend that that i was in uh at the harms meeting when we, when we had it in las vegas and you invited me out with your friend uh who i'm sure you hadn't seen in a while and i, I mean that stuck out to me and, and you know as a as sort of the start of our friendship which i think is great oh see so i'm glad that worked yeah. out but you know where we met we met at that airport uh hotel at dfw it yes. was Larry's group. He assembled a group of people who had done some VCRs to do a retrospective study. And you were a fellow at the time. And I remember it was you, Sumit, and Noel, if, I, if I'm yep. right. And That's you guys really were good on that meeting. I can't imagine what that was like from your perspective, because uh, that was pretty profound from my perspective. You know, these folks talking about how they do a VCR. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I remember that, that meeting really well. And that's hilarious because uh, because... I remember, you know, I was with Dan and we were all sitting on the floor. If you remember, it was that tiny little room and we're sitting on the floor. But I remember thinking when, when we were going, you guys were going around the room and sort of talking about the cases you've done. And I had done a few VCRs with Dan and he presented the number that he had done, which was, you know, 20 or 30 and you had 20 or 30 and so on. <laughs> Larry was like 157. And I thought, oh my God, this is crazy. You know? Yeah. And, um, and um, when we talked to Boachi, he had another hundred. So uh, yeah. the, the, the experience was amazing. Um, I do want to make a plug for the mentorship. You know, you, when, when you talked about the hallway conversation, that's obviously informal and organic, but we have formal mentorship programs in place in various societies, but certainly in POSNA, we do it for someone who's been out for a couple of years. But at IPOS, we do it for the, re the senior residents and fellows who are looking for uh, external mentorship. And so you can grow your network both internally and externally. And we try to pair up some of the attendees with faculty members. And I think that's been a great interaction. Uh, Bob Cho's in charge of that this year. And we're going to have lunchtime sessions where you can meet more of the faculty. You can have set up meetings uh, on Thursday morning for breakfast and continue that 
for the whole week or the whole year if you want to do that. And I think it's worked out to the point where several people say they still keep in touch with their IPOS mentor many years later. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've been, I was a mentor to two uh, residents last year, and it's it's been great. I mean, we had a number of meetings, and it was just fun to sort of sit down. I, and I, I think that that's an incredible program. I'm curious, you know, the iteration of that that is a little bit harder for me to sort of navigate at times is beyond the uh, sort of the, the uh work, the life, um, mentorship, but it's actually the technical side of things. So I have people who come and will text me or reach out to me about how I do a certain technique. I don't know if you have this and it's, a, it, that's been a little bit uh, more difficult for me to navigate because obviously without knowing them or training them, there's certain different skill sets that come up. I don't, I don't know if that's happened to you or if you have any advice or thoughts on that. Sometimes I send them a video or a PowerPoint on the technique. You know, if they're asking me, Oh, how do you do that? Um, if they can't come visit, I think a visitation is the best way where they're in the OR with you. You get to talk about some cases while the patient's being prepped. You get to do the case and then you get to talk about maybe some of the cases they're looking at over the next few months. I think that one-on-one interaction for a surgical observation is, is pretty amazing for all parties involved. But if you're at a meeting or you have to do it over the phone or virtual, then I just send them a PowerPoint or a talk or some video clips. Uh, this brings up Atul Gawande's idea about surgical coaching. You know, golfers yep. and tennis players have coaches. Why don't we? Well, Bern Tolo and Woody Sankar are, are actually putting together a program of at least innovation in surgical coaching and how we might be doing more of that in the future. Yeah. And I think Brandon Ramo was one of the first guinea pigs and said that it was just spectacular. I think he was Vern's mentee, which is pretty cool. So that does require some vulnerability. It does require you obviously opening yourself up to criticism, but you can gain a lot and I, I would recommend it. Whenever someone comes as a visiting professor and they can stay on after their talk, I invite them to the OR and just ask them to take a look at some things and give me some tips. And I, I think people really, they might seem shy at doing that at first, but I think, it, I think it's good for everybody to have someone look at them externally and see anyone can get better. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, so so which brings up uh, another point along this uh, line of reasoning. So we had talked before that you don't do a ton of operating with partners at this stage in the game. Like you've got fellows and you do a lot of your cases with fellows. I still do a fair number of cases with a partner. We sort of have like this loose rule that cases are curves over 100 degrees or three columns we usually do together um, because my alternative is a third and fourth year resident who I love. But those just aren't aren't great uh, options for them. And so how do you improve, how do you learn new techniques at this stage in your game? I'm assuming your practice is so busy that your next availability is going to be months out. So taking the time to go learn a new technique or just, I mean, even if it's just, you know, I want to go up the road and see how Amr does something that takes missing a day and and delaying uh, cases and stuff like that. How, How do you manage that? Um, I try to take advantage of whatever little snippets of time we have. In fact, I, I was just um, with Amr, and the occasion was the Scoliosis Research Society traveling fellows were coming through the Delaware Valley. And so we did a combo kind of uh, chop Shriners, Nemours situation for that weekend. And um, Amr had some cases with, with Stephen and Josh, and I went up there kind of as a moderator, preceptor, picked them up at the airport, took them to the shrine. But I got to watch Armour do a tether and, you know, 
every procedure you can pick up something new and, and learn something else and ask ask them some more questions. So that was good for me as well. But it's like that, picking it up on the fly. Like I just learned some stuff about the SI joint with David Polly and how we have to be thinking about that as a cause of low back pain and how to do a proper exam on a patient and work that up. That was new for me. And, you know, some of our teenagers and young adults might have SI joint dysfunction, which I sort of poo-pooed, but now I know how to do the six tests for it and perhaps work that into your differential. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, how about mentorship outside of all of this? Um, and I've got a great partner who I've told you about before. And one of my uh, old colleagues used to call him a leisure savant. I mean, he's a spectacular technical surgeon, clinical uh, uh, provider. And I'm actually hoping to have him on the, the uh, podcast at some point. But one of the things that he's been so great for me for is everything outside of work. I think he's a really good life balance mentor. Um, he's got, you know, a lot of other interests. He flies planes, he travels, he's, um, you know, involved in fly fishing and all stuff. And I'm not nearly as I think balanced as he is. Um, he's also 60 and I think he's done, he's done this and is sort of ready to, to take on some other stuff. But, um, who's your sort of life balance coach, if you will, or, or mentor? I, I don't know if I, if I have one, I think I have several um, maybe older friends or people who are outside of medicine who certainly can teach me things. And I like that. I like having friends outside of our, you know, orthopedic circle because there are so many things that about life and uh, living that we need to, we need to understand better. Um, and so those friends in whom you don't have a transactional relationship, but you genuinely enjoy hanging out with because of their company or their demeanor or their affability those are the those are the friends you should hang on to, and those are the ones that are going to make you live longer. Yeah, and I would say just as a as another bit of advice, I, I'm not great about this either. Those are the ones that tend to sometimes get pushed away as you get more involved from a professional standpoint. You have less time for the ones who are outside of medicine, and you know, talking with uh, a lot of my colleagues, the the challenge then becomes when you get into the latter half of your career and you look around and the only people you connect with are medical people. And so the importance of maintaining and fostering those friendships as your kids go through high school and their kids are off doing sports and all that kind of stuff, it's important to be able to go and have a drink or you know play a game of tennis or whatever with those people. Uh, very well stated. I learned the idea probably through a book or a podcast, but you know what really brought it home to me is the last podcast your team did with uh, complications. And Peter Waters said that those friends noticed that they were seeing him less, they reached out to him and said, hey, let's get together again. It's been a while. And that, I think, put off a light bulb in his head saying, yeah, I'm, I'm missing something. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember that and not let that happen. Yeah, I think that for those who hasn't, haven't listened to that episode, it, it's, it's pretty special. Yeah. I mean, it's a, a great group of, uh, of people on there. So. so one of the things that we had talked about on our webinar was sort of the day-to-day things. So yeah. sleep. So, uh, I, I told you, you, you had mentioned on the, on the webinar that apparently I'm not supposed to drink caffeine for an hour after waking up because it causes an abnormal cortisol balance. And so I sort of surreptitiously went decaf for the past month and I felt great. I was, yeah. you, know. you told me that I thought that was amazing. Um, I still depend on caffeine quite a bit. But this goes back to sleep. Yep. So if you're talking about wellness, I think the biggest change I've made in the last five to 10 years is sleep more. 
Um, we know that a very small, very small percentage of the population actually has the gene to be sleep elite, which is the four-hour sleeper, perfectly rested, functioning at optimal performance. Yep. We may think we do that, but we're fooling ourselves. And lacking sleep impairs you just as substances do. And so you don't want that. Um, and I think you can construct your life to sleep uh, longer or with at least better quality than you may have uh, been getting by with in the past. Sleep's not something to just get by on. We know now with lots of research that there are regenerative effects, um, avoidance of dementia, keeping your cardiovascular system healthy, um, avoiding other things like depression, and as you said, burnout. So sleep is key. If you make that the foundation of your wellness routine, you're going to get a lot of that. So what's that look like at night for you? Are you a bed by nine kind of guy? I'm, I'm trying. Not nine. Um, I'm more like starting to power things down by 10, in bed by 11, and then up at 5 or 5.30, depending on the demands of the day. So you're doing the six to six and a half hours. Yeah, with the goal of seven probably being optimal. <laughs> Is that what you did? You did the yeah, math? Yeah, I did the math very quickly. Um, yeah, so I think uh, six and a half hours works great for me. Yeah. Um, would I love seven? Yes. And you really know how much you need when you're off or you're on vacation and you have no demands on the wake-up time. Don't yep. set your alarm and wait and see what time you wake up. Now, with Daniel Pink's writing, um, what you also need to figure out is whether you're an early bird, a night owl, or what we most of us are, are third birds yep. or somewhere in between. And you take your middle of the sleep time um, and figure out that if that's around 3 or 4 a.m. for most of us, then you're a third bird. So how do you make sleep work best for you? Like, in other words, one of the challenges that I have, so we're at a conference and I, my natural wake up time is five, actually about 4.45. And if I don't go to bed on time, my, I'm just going to wake up at 4.45. And, you know, we're not set because we operate in the morning. We see patients in the morning to like, I'm going to take a mid-morning nap. Although Dave Skaggs, who may listen to this, takes apparently like six naps a day. But how do, how do you make it for you that, that you can get sleep when you've got a late case or you've got, you know, just other factors. Yeah. And I think it's like everything in life. You can have some principles, but you can't be so rigid that it's impractical. Yeah. So let's be practical about it. When I can control my schedule on most days when I'm at home um, operating and doing clinic like we usually do, um, I try to protect that time by going to bed at the right time, optimal temperature of the room. Some people use weighted blankets and other sleep aids. I don't uh, fortunately happen to need any of that. Avoiding caffeine too late in the day, avoiding bright light too late, and just getting your mind ready that, okay, I need to kind of mentally power down. So sleep hygiene is really important. And all of those things we just mentioned yeah. are key. When you get a routine down, you just train your brain. Uh, and the wake-up time should be natural. Uh, I still need an alarm from time to time, but like as you said, I think you train yourself to wake up at the same time, and then that's what you should continue to do during the weekend and as much as you can when you're traveling and on trips. Now, the difficulty here is we're also dealing with jet lag factors. So is this a good time to ask you a question? Yeah, sure. How do you handle jet lag and what are some of the pearls you've 
learned along the way? So probably the best advice I've had is to minimize my international trips. So I we're in Stockholm right now. And for those who haven't been, it's a spectacular city. I'd strongly recommend it. But I think for me, I know my sleep schedule and it will throw me off on both ends enough that if it's for a day or two, I probably am trying not to do that. Yeah. When you say minimize you're not sure, are you talking about the duration or the frequency? The frequent, well, the frequency and the duration. So I've heard people who can like fly over for a conference in Paris, then come back the next day. And that would throw me off quite a bit. So when I come, I come and I stay so that I can equilibrate a little bit because I feel as though my sleep health is vital. And, you know, you throw in dinners and cocktails and things like that on top of it. And, and so I don't sleep great. In the States, I struggle, uh, especially when I'm going West, because well, I think like most of us do, because all of a sudden it's, you know, I'm getting up at three in the morning and two in the morning and one in the morning. That makes it a lot harder. So I try to stay incredibly well hydrated. That's been helpful. On the flight and And, and yes. And actually, so uh, I ski a lot and or I used to ski a lot. I don't ski as much as I want to now. But um, so I will oftentimes prehydrate for a few days ahead of time, which has been shown at least in the altitude sickness world to help. And I don't know if there's any data on jet lag per se for that, but I try to stay very hydrated the week coming up to it. Yeah, it certainly can harm you uh, hydrating more. Uh, so speaking of preparation before you leave. Yep. Do you ever adjust the time you sleep and wake up in preparation for that? Not really. I, I'm such a creature of habit. I mean, I'm 10 to 4.45 mm-hmm. like every day of the year. Okay. And so it going to bed at 9, unless I'm, I've just had an exhausting day, just yeah. doesn't happen. I think for the short trips, that might work. And then when you get off the plane <laughs> and it's morning here in mm-hmm. Stockholm, what do you do to get on track? So I, I try as much as I can to assume a close to normal schedule. So I took a 20-minute nap yesterday, but I set an alarm. Uh, and I and same thing, so stayed very hydrated uh, through the day. But I tried to have a lunch at a normal, you know, at a local time uh, around 1230. Um, and then we were a little bit late at dinner last night. But normally I would try to have a relatively normal dinner time. Those things seem to help me. And then the other thing is I exercise – 365 days a year. So I got a workout in yesterday and then I got a workout in this morning at sort of my normal time or close to my normal time. And that for me, I think helps reset. Yeah, absolutely. Exercise provides balance too. Um, and I think getting, getting onto mealtime is really key. So I didn't hear anything about use of substances (laughs) or caffeine or anything like that. Um, I still use caffeine to help me with jet lag. Some of the, the dips, um, certainly my worst time would be 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. at home. And so because I know that, I'm, I'm going to avoid perhaps doing a really important task during that time or maybe use caffeine to kind of get over that. Day. Yeah. Now, do you do um, melatonin or anything like that? No, I don't think melatonin works for me. Um, I think it's uh, fairly harmless in terms of its side effect profile. But I'm not sure it works. We, there's a, um, a book that I was given, and I haven't started yet, so I'm blanking on the name, but I think it's called How We Sleep or Why We Sleep. Um, and I read like the first six or eight pages, but I guess one of the biggest misconceptions in melatonin is that more is better. So the average normal melatonin dose that that humans need is between one and three milligrams. So I did the you know typical male thing when I went to the pharmacy a while back, and I got 10 milligrams because if three is good, then 10 has got to be better, but it actually throws you off quite a bit. And so I've, I used to have 
almost no uh, response to melatonin at high doses or it would throw me off and it just didn't work. And then three milligrams has been great. Oh, so you titrated the dose for you. One thing we didn't talk about was exposure to sunlight. Um, and I think you want to get exposure to sunlight as early in the morning as possible to, again, reset your clock. And then maybe being exposed to twilight closer to sundown before it gets dark is important. I've read that that gets your circadian rhythm reset very quickly. So let me ask you, uh, again, we're at a conference and there's dinners at night and, you know, there, and normally during the week, either I, I don't drink any uh, wine or, or anything like that, but if I do, it'll be early in the night with the idea that I'm going to get good sleep. It's impossible here, at least for me. And so how do you manage that when you come to meetings like this? Well, um, when, when talking about wearable technologies, I used the WHOOP trial I did. And it was shocking what different things did to my sleep, eating too late, eating the wrong thing, a couple of drinks. So one thing it, it taught me was that I really need to watch the effects of sleep. So again, let's be practical, right? If, um, if I wanted optimal sleep, I would never go out at a meeting like this. But going out and networking and socializing is what we missed for the past yeah. three years. Yeah. So of course, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it in moderation and just be smart about things. Um, because we all have tasks the next morning. I can't afford to, to sleep in at this meeting because I probably have something to do with early. And I want to, you know, be at optimal performance for that. So I just am very conscious of what I'm doing when and uh, try to do better. So um, one of the things, uh, and you, you know well, and probably the listener has no idea about this, but I, a couple of years ago, went vegan, and I'm close to vegan, although uh, it's like an 85, it's the dirty vegan. But I have found that the biggest change uh, was not that, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't have a problem with the taste of meat at all, but it was, I just felt like crap afterwards. Yeah. And at meetings, when you'd have, you know, this big dinner and you'd have a big steak or something like that. And then that would throw me off. So I think the type of foods that I ate, especially when I was back eating meat, I think really was uh, was had a big impact on me. And you probably thought that was normal. Yeah, because that's what it is. So yeah. do you think that it's a uh, fat content issue or an inflammatory issue related to animal protein? That's a great question. I, so I, I don't have any direct knowledge, but I think it's probably more of the inflammatory thing. Because I certainly, I mean, you can get relatively high fat foods that are vegan. Um, it's a little bit harder. Um, but I definitely think that sort of they're, they tend to be a little bit more carb heavy. Um, and so, which in theory is maybe a little bit less inflammatory at, at the early onset. So I think it probably is inflammation. Um, and then just a, a question to you about meat substitutes. Mm -hmm. Uh, do you find, um, things like some of these imitation hamburger patties, uh, appealing or, do you not like that? No, I love them. I think they're, they're great. So there are, so uh, for those who, who haven't tried, um, you know, impossible is actually uh, pardon for the I pun, but I don't think any, I don't think the impossible <laughs> brands or beyond is going to come after me for it, but impossible is, is, is really difficult to miss these days. There's so many good options. And, um, I think it, because uh, I've done it now to my kids numerous times. They don't know it, but I've swapped out their regular burger for impossible. And I think the burger that I made them was great. Um, but there are, I think a fair number of more locally sourced or, you know, small batch, 
especially in the sausage world, um, alternatives, and I'm blanking on the name right now, but there's a couple of really spectacular ones that I would, I, I would, even if I was back still eating meat, I would prefer the taste of them over sort of the typical. I think they're getting better. Um, but, uh, people should know that they're not necessarily healthy no. because they have to substitute some of the animal fats with other yep. like, uh, hydrogenated oils and things like that. So just, uh, read the labels, but I, I do like the texture and, and taste of a lot of those things. Um, and now there's like chicken tenders yep. and all kinds of things. Fit, yeah, fish. Yeah. Same but, but I think that the, the people at impossible meats designed it so that it would exactly mimic even when it's cooking. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it looks like, you know, a, it looks like a burger. Yeah. It tastes, I think, like a burger. And the fat content is very similar to a burger. So um, well, are you familiar with the, the story early in the Impossible um, experience? They used a Burger King in St. Louis and were substituting Whopper patty for yes. Impossible. Yes. And unbeknownst to some people, they would then interview them in the parking yeah. lot when they left the restaurant. And people were irate. They were rating the quality very high, but when they found out it wasn't real beef, yeah. they were really upset. Yep, yep. Well, you know, one, the question that I always get is, do you miss it? And as you know, like we had fish last night. So I, I do eat some. My daughter loves sushi, so we go out. But most of my meals are vegan-based, and I don't miss it really at all because there, are, to me, there are enough – relative meat substitutes there are a few things i don't i mean you can't it's hard to make a vegan steak i don't think they're ever going to get to that but they can make a lot of other things taste vegan so if i want something that tastes like the meat that i used to eat then then there are things out there yeah and you and i have had some great meals together yes and it's not exactly just what you're eating it's the experience it's the conversation it's the presentation there the colors the textures, yes. the mouthfeel i'm so it's a lot more than just that. And I completely agree with you that if um, if you want to avoid certain things, there are really talented chefs, just as there are talented surgeons who can do a great job with anything. Yep. Um, so I don't think they should rely necessarily on meat to do the job for them. There's also a lot of st- vegan stuff that's pretty terrible. So, um, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, ignoring the fact that, that they are meat alternatives and that's the name for a reason. So, um, all right. So I wanted to, uh, to get into a couple of other areas. Um, you know, it's funny, we send questions to each other beforehand, uh, just talking points. And we, one of the ones that we both had was about things that you do differently now that you weren't doing five years ago. And the question, the way that I had, had termed it was, what are a couple of things that have really changed within your practice? I mean, when you look at technologies, I think technologies are the obvious ones. But are there things that you do specifically differently now, more in the technique or in the in the approach side of things? So I'll give you an example for me. You know, when I came out, I was very sort of, sort of dogmatic about my approach to the number that I would consider operating at for AIS. So I was trained in Dallas, and we were pretty rigid in our operative indications. And I've subsequently seen a number of kids with, you know, curves in the upper fifties who are skeletally mature. They don't want surgery and they look great and they're super well balanced. And I've said, you look great. And then conversely, you'll see kids with, especially with, with lumbar curves who can have 38 degree curves that are six centimeters decompensated and a skinny little teenage girl doesn't like that. So that was one, that's one of the things that came to mind for me that I'm doing differently is I'm really trying to look more at the big picture than at the number. But what are some of the things that you think of? Well, Let's start in the office. I think that one thing I really try to do is involve the family in the decision making. Before, for me, it was very much 
here's the evidence, here's what should be done. You always get that inevitable question, what would you do if mm -hmm. it was your son or daughter? That puts you in an awkward position sometimes because you want to have them make the decision. But now I really do. Um, and shared decision-making is a really powerful tool to engage them in their child's care. And obviously, if the child's old enough, I let them view, uh, give their viewpoint. So let them speak. I listen. I want to understand what their expectations are. And then I want to recommend to them what might be the best thing that they should entertain based on those expectations. Because yep. until you ask them, you have no idea. And why force your viewpoint on them? So it's about understanding and perspective getting their engagement with shared decision-making. In the operating room, I'm definitely more patient. I am not as handsy with the fellows. I will talk and coach them rather than show them. When did you make that switch? Because I think that's a difficult thing to do. I don't know. It's very difficult. And for, the, for our younger members, it's extremely difficult yeah. because there's a lot at stake and you have to know how to get out of a jam. Um, it, it wasn't a, a light switch. It was very gradual and necessary for being a better teacher, I think. So you, and, and just so that the audience knows, because we've talked about it, you work predominantly with fellows, but how, how often do you work with residents? Um, I would say probably one out of four episodes okay. with a resident. You know, for a spine yeah. case, it's very fellow heavy. Now, when I'm taking trauma call and all that, I'm probably much more with the residents than with the fellows. And for, for those types of cases, we definitely use our fellows more as the teacher, me yeah. as the, you know, I'm not saying much or doing much. In fact, you have to tell me if you want me to retract anything at that point. But again, with it, with, uh, with a spine case, I'm on one side, our, our trainee is on the other side. And regardless of their, their PGY level, I'm trying to let them do the same thing uh, that I would normally let a fellow do. Right. And, and does that, how, how do you graduate that, that autonomy during the year? So do, when they show up on August 1st, are they doing all their own ponties? Are they doing? No. Okay. I think we talk about it. Um, so we have the scrub sink bargain. I assess their knowledge and skill level from their residency, their experience. We talk about what they want to do. And if their goal for that day is to get better at exposure, then we'll set some parameters. Okay, well, how long do you want this to take? How much should the blood loss be when we're done the exposure? And uh, we actually have been recording the time for various steps of a spine procedure for years. Through so, homes. Yeah. yeah. And through the study group, uh, all that data is available. And I know what how long it should take in the beginning of the year versus the end of the year. And it's about getting better. So we set pretty modest expectations in the beginning. But then every time I'm seeing them again, we are kind of turning up mm -hmm. the difficulty, turning up the expectations. So um, I love this line of, of uh, discussion, by the way, because I feel like you can go off in a lot of different directions. So with regards to that timing, I found that I've actually slowed down a little bit, it, almost intentionally. And when I was younger in my practice, I was more worried that I must be so slow because I'm new and I'm you know not as experienced that I would move more quickly and, and be a little bit impatient. And then you start, you know, I'm going to 
for example, a really wide dissection around the facet to allow your facetectomy so you're not trying to rip that piece out and, and take out all the soft tissue. I used to just sort of leave that on the side and then, you know, run it out and stir up a lot of bleeding. And now I'm so much more deliberate. And I feel as though if I were to track my exposure over time, it probably is almost longer at times than it used to be. But I feel like other steps in the process are going to go quicker. Yeah. Have you found a similar thing? Yeah. Well, you're talking about efficiency. Yes. Um, Overall what, efficiency, though, right, though, yeah. Right. What? Um, and it's not cutting corners. Right. It's trying to optimize what's minimally necessary for maximal gain. And so one of the other things that we could mention is what I don't do as much now is I don't go as wide on the exposure. I know exactly what I need to go out wide to see the pedicle st- starting point. But if you go out onto the TP and to the cosmotibial joint, you're doing harm to the yeah. patient. Plus, it takes longer. It bleeds more and everything associated yeah. with that. So, yeah, uh, there are lots of things that you can minimize in terms of exposure to get to the shortest time minimal blood loss. So on top of sort of how you operate and the the way at which you, the the speed at which you operate and the patients that you're having in the OR, any technical things that you do differently now then? Yeah, lots because technology is getting better, medications are getting better. I was always a big fan of antifibrinolytics. Unfortunately, aproton was taken off the market, but TXA is great. It's cheap. So we keep the, uh, this is, by the way, AIS, perfect monitoring. Yep. Uh, we keep the blood pressure on exposure in the 60s mean. Um, the TXA is what most people consider high dose now, 30 and 10. Mm-hmm. Um, Bovi on a pretty high setting, but respectful of the soft tissues at the same time. Effective use of retractors sponges and the goal would be to get the exposure done in 30 minutes with less than 100 cc's of blood loss um and for most of the time that works but it's at least setting a goal so that when it takes longer or you bleed more you recognize the fact that you're taking longer and bleeding more which just means that maybe somewhere on the back end you got to make up time um we didn't have an o-arm until 10 years ago so I was checking all my screws with fluoro and intercostal EMG stimulation. And for the past 10 years, we've had, you know, superb intraoperative axial imaging. No patient has left the operating room with a malpositioned screw and has had to return during the time. And that's obviously game-changing technology. You know, I don't use navigation routinely, but having it available for those difficult cases, again, makes a good person better and makes it safer for the patient. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think that I was, I I wouldn't say I was against the idea of navigation, but I felt as though I could navigate any pedicle that I needed to or or skip it um, as appropriate uh, without navigation. And then I got it. And I think it really showed me, I mean, we talked about this before, it'll show you some pedicles that you probably didn't want to see. But I think it also makes you understand the anatomy that much better. And so for me, I, I found it very useful. And I don't use it for every case, and I don't use it for every for all parts of, of any case, but there have been some cases that I've needed it for basically the entire case for from a navigation standpoint because of very complex revision or just very weird underlying anatomy. And so for me, it's it's been great. And I have changed my tune as to how I view navigation. I agree. I think it does make a good surgeon better. I think it's also a great teaching tool. If, if using axial imaging for immediate feedback on how you did freehand is great for our trainees, and then using navigation intraoperatively to show them 
uh, first, maybe let them pick the starting point and the angle and realize how rotated or dysplastic that really is. Um, and it's eye-opening, obviously. Yeah, I agree. So um, you had mentioned it before, but we did have a call-in question from Dan Cicado about Ponte. So I was curious if you could, uh, has, Dan's, has Dan's that changed? trying to debate me on that subject. So yeah, I think Ponte's are probably the single most effective way posteriorly to mobilize the spine short of taking the rib cage apart. Right. And, and I think that there, so I, you know, I trained in Dallas and, and I think that there are so many aspects to curve correction that there's probably more than just the individual procedure of the Ponte that, that lends itself to correction. I think that there's technique and rods and, you know, screw placement, and there's a lot of other aspects. So, so I also agree with you. I think that, that it's, it's a very successful. But, but isn't it frustrating that it seems to be so variable? Yes. In the homesteading group, we tried to look at factors that were important for, say, kyphosis restoration. And ultimately, it came down to the surgeon. surgeon. Yeah. Oh, we don't want to hear that. Yeah. Because we want it to be standardized and reproducible. Yeah. And something able to teach. So that's a little frustrating, but I think... The special sauce is probably multifactorial. The recognition that this is the most lordotic segment, and that's why it needs a posterior column release. The recognition that differential rod contouring is going to pull that concave apex out of the chest. Um, and, you know, modern derotation techniques to, again, kind of put the icing on the cake. All that is very variable in our community, but important. I agree. Let, let me ask before we get away from this. One of the other things that I've changed, I think, a little bit more as I've gotten into my career is understanding when to say when and when enough is enough, especially as my practice has also gotten more complex. I've, I think in spite of the power of Pontes and the power of all the other things that we have, there are certain cases where I realize that, especially I think with the, with the rotational deformity, that I just, I, you can't fix all of that. And I've been better at, I think, trying to balance safety against the ultimate outcome and not pushing too far than I was early on. Have you noticed a similar thing? Have you, have you struggled with that? Because it gets into our next discussion about, our next question about complications. But Certainly. I think everyone struggles with that, the, the dose of surgery mm -hmm. I think you're asking about. The more complicated patients probably require more surgery. Yep. And... I think that comes with experience. I don't think that there's a single answer to that question, but we know a lot more about kyphosis and sagittal restoration. So that's going to drive me higher into the cervical thoracic area. Um, we know that neuromuscular patients probably do better now with pelvic fixation instrumentation, which was always our posture at DuPont and Moore's. But now that that's spaced in the literature now, it'd be much more accepted to fuse someone to the pelvis, regardless necessarily of their ambulation potential, because you know that, um, you know, provided that they have good, good physical therapy, they can ambulate even being fused to the pelvis. But that's just another example of probably a higher dose of surgery. I think that the important thing I would want to emphasize is take the extra 20 to 30 minutes and make a better decision for your patient 
Otherwise, the revision sometimes is harder than the initial surgery. Absolutely. Yeah. One extra level takes very little time, but coming back and doing it. I was part of that project that Dave and Lindsay published called Don't You Wish You'd Fuse the Pelvis the First Time? And it's, it's a very appropriate, I didn't come up with the title, but it was a good title. So along those lines, you know, and this, this is always a little bit of a tough subject, but were, were, were there any big complications that really stood out for you? And A, how did you, like, sort of looking back, how do you think you managed them? And what, how did they maybe shape your practice moving forward? Um, I think early, you know, everyone deals with a bad infection. Mm-hmm. Um, naturally, you do this enough. And uh, statistically, you're supposed to have a neural deficit. Fortunately, that's not been the case, but it might be. I think you can always do uh, what's right for the patient. Um, Good decision-making involves bringing in other people. Um, Good decision-making means explaining to the family that this happened and you have a plan to deal with it. I think when there's uncertainty or lack of disclosure, it's always worse. It's better to be upfront uh, involving, you know, your risk management structure or whatever that is at your hospital, involve, involving your senior colleagues or mentors to help you, and then dealing with it. Just deal with it. Get who you need to help you and get get over that uh, that hump. Yeah. Afterwards, though, um, you know, the patient, unfortunately, suffered a complication. Maybe they had a bad outcome. What happens to us afterwards I wasn't really aware of this whole second victim, yep. but it's it's real. It takes a lot out of you. And unfortunately, uh, the support structure we were talking about earlier might take a hit on that too. Yep. Right? And that's something you really got to recognize early. And obviously, now there are good resources to help people with that as well. Yeah, I, I, I think that that is one of those things that until you've experienced it, you really have no way of knowing how hard it's going to hit you. And I mean, you hear it from, I heard it from every one of my mentors that just wait till you have a complication. And and then, and then when it happens, it's just, it's so hard on the patient. It's so hard on the family. And then for, you know, for a long time, it's really, really hard on you. And so sure. I've had distal um, fixation failures that had to be revised. I've had, you know, a delayed CSF leak that first of all, you know, you don't, you don't know why that happened and all the workup keeps turning up weird ways. And Noelle uh, Larson um, kind of helped me with this because she published something on delayed CSF leaks and we kind of bounced some ideas off of each other. Um, and so there are things that happen. And at this point, I've probably seen everything uh, and hopefully can give some people some, some good advice along the way. But at... Um, you have to be careful that it doesn't take too much out of you. Yep. Um, I know some people stop practicing or stop doing spine surgery or hip surgery because of a bad thing that happened. The most important thing is to recognize that no one's infallible and get back on the horse as quickly as possible. Yeah, I agree. Your way of dealing with things. Well, and I was going to ask you how you sort of reset and recharge in that in that situation, either with that or just with a really hard you know period. I've had like you have, have had these weeks where it's three really big days of really hard cases. And sometimes it's hard for me to reset after that. You know, the Friday clinic can be a little bit. It is. Um, but again, use your support structure around you. I've got great partners. I've got great uh, APPs. Um, and we just, uh, we help each other. It's a team. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I had, 
mentioned to you earlier I wanted to, to talk about was industry. Um, and I, I really do think that you have bridged an incredibly important gap because certainly on the outside, but probably a fair amount on the inside of, uh, of orthopedics, of our specialty, there, the, the industry uh, relationship with surgeons and with physicians has a little bit of a bad name. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that certainly my hospital looks at them as the enemy and that we should be doing apparently you know, spine fusions with generic implants, um, which, which isn't really feasible in, in the U S but I think you've done a really good job because you worked at the society level and bridging that relationship. So I'm curious, um, if you can maybe give your, your views on, on how we as, as physicians should partner with industry and what the future holds as their margins narrow a bit, and they're still trying to ma- remain involved in a time when they're not, you know, making as much money. Yeah, well, I, thanks for asking. I have several ideas about that. One of them is that we should be prepared to be independent of industry at some point. Because if we're not prepared, most of our societies only have cash reserves to run for two or three years. So the first thing is it's important to recognize that the folks in industry should be our partners. There are corporate supporters or industry partners, not adversaries. Um, sure, they want to sell implants, and that's what sustains them as a company. But you have to remember that our registration fees would be exorbitantly high. The meetings would be much smaller or to scale in a nonprofit organization like POSNA. And the industry support helps us do more, teach more, and provide better quality education uh, and supports the entire rest of the year of the society and its operating budget. So we have to recognize that they're a really important partner in this journey. So again, just like we talked about the family, what are what's industry's expectations of us? Uh, what do we expect from them? And if we can meet them in the middle, then everyone benefits. Now, there are guidelines. This stuff has to be legal, and everyone has to come out of the process uh, benefiting, which to, to um, this point has been done very well, very ethically and above board, and I think everyone's, everyone's happy with it. Now, the, the game's changing uh, with new regulations and what companies can do in the current environment with their educational budgets and profit margins, as you mentioned. So we just have to be prepared for change and be responsive to that. How do you, because I think your involvement with industry has been critical, but, you know, at some point you develop conflicts because you have relationships and you have people who you work with and companies that you trust. How do you manage the conflicts that you have, especially as you're trying to innovate forward, you know, moving forward, how do you, how do you stay neutral enough that you don't, you know, basically go off and, and only, you know, do one thing or, or. Yeah. Well, I think that comes with recognizing the fact that, that there might be a conflict and stepping back and having just a general perspective of it. Um, trying not to play favorites, trying not to have favors for friends, but really entertaining all of the proposals equally. Um, and I, I just try to do better and hope that people will point out uh, if they do see a problem. So um, I wanted to shift a little bit to just sort of general work life. Um, and and we've both talked a fair amount of, about books. We'll get to that in a second. But, um, you know, uh, just for perspective, what what's your week look like? How many days are you in the OR? I'm in the clinic two days a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and the OR Tuesdays and Wednesdays. 
I've fortunately been able to leave Fridays generally unscheduled for patient care, which has been just a boon to everything else that I need to do and want to do. And so that's available for research meetings or travel day or the add-on case or a family conference or, you know, now more, more leadership opportunities and teaching. So it's a great schedule. I love it. Is it sustainable as other parts of the Venn diagram contract and expand? I don't know, but it's worked really well for me. And did it always do that? Did, because I think that I, I too have taken an admin. It's actually a half day, three days a month, but I didn't at the beginning. I thought that I needed to be working literally from the second that I woke up to the second that I went to bed. And I think that's recipe for disaster to some extent. But did you have a realization or was it always set up that way and at the beginning? You're like, hey, what am I supposed to do on Friday, guys? No, I had to massage the schedule a little bit. I think <laughs> when I first started out, um, I inherited Freeman Miller's schedule. And so you know, I think it was operating Wednesdays and many Fridays. The Tuesday came up, so I grabbed that and dropped the Friday and things have just kind of evolved since. And it's a great schedule because, you know, as the length of stay for AIS has gotten shorter, yeah. um, I hardly have anyone in over the weekend and it's just, uh, it's just worked, really worked well. Yeah, that definitely has worked well. So, um, so then you get a chance for the, for the three day weekend occasionally, right. With the family. So what's sort of the perfect vacation for you? I like taking short vacations <laughs> rather than just one big long one. So uh, we'll go to the beach because it's pretty close Sometimes it'll be an early Friday and just hanging out at home. It really depends on when the kids were growing up. It really depended on what their needs and their schedules were as to whether we could do yep. things or they had sports and stuff. Now that we're probably in a little bit more control or they're somewhat independent, um, we can choose things too. So uh, New York is close. D.C. is close. The beach is close. We always used to deliberately take a vacation out west to ski, but if we wanted to ski locally, we could. Yeah. Yeah, but but you and Sheila now enjoy the ability to have some more freedom and not have. I mean, a little bit more. Yeah, we got a dog. Oh, that's recently. right, because my <laughs> so daughter loves your dog. After my wife holding out for twenty years. We finally got a dog, and so now that um, we're about to be empty nesters soon, we have a little Furby. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, for, so I visited Sukin a year ago, or when this dog was a, a little puppy, and she was terrified of everybody except my daughter, mm-hmm. who as a dog whisperer, I guess. So. Yeah. She's much better with people now, but uh, less so with other dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Now you were taught, you, you were saying before that, uh, one of your struggles with, uh, we're going to move towards sort of books and reading, but is that when you read, sometimes you almost feel guilty. You're like, I've only got this amount of time. It better be a good book. Yeah. Well, uh, we should specify that when I'm reading non work related yes. stuff or fiction or something like that. And for the, and, and even, uh, I kind of feel a little bit like that when I'm watching a series or a movie. Yep. I have to confess that. Like, I feel like our time is so valuable. Am I spending my time on the right thing? Yeah. And if you consider that reading can make you a better person, spouse, father, leader, then you absolutely should be devoting time to that. Movies, on the other hand, maybe there's a case to be made that's just pure fun. Yeah. But... Uh, you got to enjoy yourself. You got to enjoy. So, yeah. I love movies and I love certain, you know, binging certain miniseries and things like that. So you got to, you got to have time. For that. Yeah. What was the last miniseries that you binged? Well, I didn't binge Ted Lasso as much because it was sort of coming out yeah. uh, episode by episode. But my wife and I love Succession. Yes. 
we watch some things with the kids once in a while too. Like Never Have I Ever is pretty popular with my daughter. I don't know that one. Uh, so things along where, where everyone can watch together is what we're trying to do. My kids are at a fun age because they now can watch pretty much any sitcom and they're, the, the mature themes are okay. So we've just recently started watching Arrested Development from the beginning and I had forgotten how funny that show is. I mean, it's a riot. It's a lot of seasons, but it's but they're like twenty minute episodes, so it's good for the end of the night. So um, uh, I know that books are something that uh, that you sort of enjoy getting into a bit, and you sent me a list of books, and it's interesting. Uh, so I've read Sapiens. I was I actually had bought I think Cutting for Stone for my Kindle and, and hadn't read it, and then um, you're you also had Getting the Yes, which I've read Deep Work Essentialism. I haven't read Make It Stick. Any of them really stick out? What are some of the things that you? Well, um, I guess we should separate kind yeah. of the nonfiction yeah. fiction. Um, Cutting for Stone was just an amazing book for me because my brother, uh, who's four years younger than me, is a transplant surgeon. Uh, and he actually gave me the book. And so I didn't really know what it was about until I started reading it. It's conjoined twins, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's their life's journey in two separate environments, the U.S. and Ethiopia, and how they're both trying to do the best they can in their, in their own environments. And it's a fascinating book. Uh, I recommend it to everyone. It's, you know, it takes a while to read, but you can certainly knock it off in a, in a summer. Yeah. And then the other really great books, uh, The Overstory, which I think I heard from a guest. Uh, oh, it was Hugh Jackman was on. Oh, Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss yes. podcast yep, yep. and said that was one of his favorite books. It's about books. The, the Redwoods, right? Yes. It's really, um, you know, I don't want to spoil it, but uh, the story is really about trees. There are eight different independent stories running at the same time, but you realize what it's really about are trees. And I totally agree with something that Hugh Jackman said, which was, once you read this book, you will never look at trees the same way again. And I read it a couple of years ago, and I'm still fascinated by trees. And the trees in Sweden are different than the ones back home or in Georgia or in San Diego. And you just really appreciate that. But the way they can communicate is fascinating to me. And that's what the life of trees is about, how through the, the microbiome and the root structure and all that, these trees are in groves or communicating with each other. Danger or this is where the nutrients are or weather or predators. It, the whole thing is just so fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got a book that I think you would really like called Shantaram. Have you read Shantaram? Yeah. So. It's a little bit of an epic uh, saga, so it, it will take you also a summer, but it was recommended to me. And it's the story of a, um, a guy who actually escapes from prison in Australia, the first chapter of the book, and uh, escapes to India. And his journey through five or six different areas within India, and, it, and it's all sort of trying to get to a woman, but it's, it's so beautifully written, just talking with you enough i think you yeah, really enjoyed a lot yeah sure. yeah no the the non-fiction you know the category of um self-improvement and business knowledge and is huge right and so uh, one of the rules i have is the book has to be recommended multiple times to me before i can read it getting to yes was one of those books for those of you who don't know it's a book about negotiation just very basic about botna and how to approach a negotiation and how to be deliberate about that because many people are really intimidated by that. And I think it's a great skill to have for anything in life, buying a car, negotiating a job, asking for a raise, uh, and even resolving conflict. Negotiation can go a long way. So I, I recommend that highly. The thing about essentialism 
is that you should not read it too early in your career. Yep. Because I don't want people to get the wrong idea. The book is about saying no. You could say that on the surface. What it's really about is what's important to you and sticking to that. Yep. And doing things well before you take on too much. Um, and this was recommended to me by Hamish Crawford. And um, I love the book and I recommend it. But only to people who have been out in practice for about 10 years. Would you say that's the sweet spot? Yeah, that's what I actually read it two years ago after Mike Vitale was our visiting professor. And he said around nine to 10 years. And I read it. And I, I completely agree. And, uh, and my interest in that area really stemmed from Jack Flynn has a, that great talk. And he says no to probably more things than I can even say yes to. But I think that it's been just a total game changer for me, for my life, for my marriage. I mean, to to really put first things first and figure out the things that are truly important to you. Um, there are a couple of ones that I wanted to. So I've I've mentioned this, I think, previously on the podcast once um, because somebody had mentioned that they'd read it. But it's called Solve for Happy. Uh, we talked earlier about complications. And so I had a period I want to say five or six years ago, where I had a bunch of complications right in a row. And none of them were devastating, but it was really this additive thing. And I tend to be a pretty happy guy. And I went through a period where I just wasn't fine. I felt like ever, everything was working against me. Mm-hmm. And so Mo uh, Gaudat, who is, I'm probably messing up his name, but who is the, the author, was, was a very high up Google exec and was in charge of the Google car I can't remember what that is. Google X, I think is what it was called. In any case, uh, he was your typical hard charging guy, fabulously successful, ultra wealthy. And his son, um, who was his, you know, he has a son and a daughter. His son went in for an appendectomy and they took the trocar and put it through the aorta and he died. And his story is about, he, they never sued. And it was it was coming to peace and happiness, and it was it was a total game changer. I thought it was what it was a book that I initially thought was going to be fluffy, and I wouldn't have liked it. And I've read it I think three times, and I've given it away a ton. It's a, it's an unbelievable book, and I would highly recommend it for anybody who has that period of their practice where they're just you know things are going well. It's a great recommendation, and so part of probably what you were going through was second victim syndrome. Yes, and um, you know temporary kind of black cloud. Yep. But you just got to say it's not about you. The population we take care of is really challenging. How did you, besides reading the book, how did you get past it? So I think that we probably all deal with these things differently. I'd love to know how you do it. But I tell everybody, everybody that I can, everybody that it's safe to tell what happened, how it happened, why I thought it happened, ask for advice. I'm very open about it. I've had a incredible partner who I've mentioned before in the podcast, Bob Bruce, who um, has been doing this for about 30 years and is very much somebody who's about well-being. The only fight we've ever been in has been when I didn't go on a vacation with my kids early on because he, I thought that I had to work and he got mad at me for it. And so I go to him and he's been great. Mike Schmitz, who's a, um, my chief, has, has been terrific about it. I've got a very uh, understanding and, and loving spouse who, you know, you have to sort of keep it HIPAA compliant, but, you know, gets, gets the big picture. And then, you know, I, I think reading this, I've done some meditation and then for me, exercise is always sort of my reset. And so, you know, all of a sudden a 10 mile, 10 mile run when I, trust me, I don't run 10 miles, but that'll just happen sometimes if I, if I've got a bad day. Yeah. I think temporarily at least compartmentalizing it helps, um, trying to s- step outside yourself first for as long as you can and just, Evaluating what's important is key, absolutely. But you also can't let it change your decision-making going forward 
if a similar patient comes along or another patient comes along, because sometimes you get scared or um, want to avoid that, but that's probably the wrong thing to do. You should make that decision independent of what just happened. Exactly. You know, they, yep. What do they call it? Kind of treating it based on your last patient. Yep, yep. No, it should be treating it based on your last entire experience yep. or sticking to your evidence base or your principles rather than the last patient. An anecdote can't drive your practice. You know, um, I also, I recently read this book. Um, you're a tennis player. We've talked, you're much better than I am, I'm sure. But, um, Brad Gilbert has a great book that if you are into tennis, I would highly recommend it's called winning ugly. And it was written in the early nineties. It's the, it's one of the most celebrated sports, you know, psychology books that's ever been written. And it's incredibly quick. I mean, I think you can read it practically overnight. I like but, most of the sports books. <laughs> the, the, because of that. But 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 I, I think that the the real benefit for me, Brad Gilbert was uh, made it to number four in the world, never had a big serve, never had a big forehand, but he's very smart. And I think that in our world, whether it be spine or anywhere else in pediatric orthopedics, there is a component of winning ugly, that there are days that you have to just you have to think through the what can happen ahead of time, be prepared for things that you weren't expecting, and sometimes you just win ugly. And as long as the patient is taken care of and has the best outcome that you can give, sometimes it's not going to be the exact perfect thing. And that was hard early on in my practice. And I mean, I've gotten better at it. And I, I just read this book recently, but I really sort of reflected on it both in the fact that I'm a terrible tennis player most of the time, and that helped me there. But it also, I think, helps me just every day in, in practice. Yeah, I mean, at our age, we've got to play smarter because yes. it's hard to run down balls and things like that. So a couple of great things uh, for, as a springboard for that book. There's a player on the tour right now named Colin Nori. He's yes. a freshman. Yeah. And again, he's got barely a 100-mile-per-hour serve. Yeah. His backhand's terrible, yeah. but he's winning on the tour. Yeah. He's such a smart player, and he's getting deep in some of these tournaments. Yeah. I think he was... Uh, in the quarters at the U.S. Open, yeah. went pretty far. He's ninth in the world right now. Yeah. yeah, he's killing it for a game that doesn't look all that great. But it goes to show you. I mean, uh, he's winning ugly in a way. Yeah. Um, and I think I think uh, if we could talk about emotional intelligence along the same vein, it's probably just as important as surgical talent and good bedside manner. And I give search inside yourself uh, the the book by the Google sort of yep. spiritual coach. Uh, to all the fellows, because emotional intelligence uh, and other things like negotiating and all that, no one learns that in medical school yep. or residency. So we have to give our trainees other tools to be better. Yeah. And emotional intelligence will help you in so many different ways. And that book is an excellent one. That also has a chapter on meditation and self-assessment and just a great book. Yeah. Do you meditate? Not deliberately. Yeah. Um, but I think that I'm trying to do it more, especially maybe right before sleep or um, I think my pre-flight nap, you know, on the tarmac there, yeah. I'm probably meditating and then just fall asleep. Yep. But that's good too. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I need to be better about it. I'll tell you the, the Headspace app yeah. has been spectacular and that's actually a way that I go back to sleep at night. Um, Could you meditate without an app now? Uh, yeah, I can meditate without an app. Yeah. I, I think it depends the, the, the mindset I'm in though. There's sometimes I need one. If I'm in sort of a racy place, then I need it. But if I'm if I feel like I can reach a, a point of peace yeah. and tranquility, then I'll do it. Well, clearly, you know, meditation's five thousand years old from Eastern culture, so I'm acquainted with it. But I never really thought it was for me. It's um, gained a lot of popularity recently, and I think it's got great benefits. You'll see long-term evidence of 
uh, structural changes in the brain, I guess not structural changes, but bio biochemical changes in the brain from people who meditate routinely. So if we're going to touch on avoiding a cognitive deficit and keeping yourself as, as healthy as possible and a health span rather than lifespan, meditation, sleep, and exercise have to be in that keystone there. Completely agree. Yeah. And I think I feel fortunate that we are coming or that I'm going through my practice at a time in history when those things are appreciated better or understanding it better. Um, you know, I think that it is, my dad was a physician and he's a radiologist. And I think that, you know, probably most of the people on this call think of radiologists as people who go home at five. I'll tell you what my dad was, you know, up at working till eight or nine at night, every night, we didn't have a PAX machine. This was in the eighties and nineties. So every single time they needed an x-ray, he would drive 15 minutes to Newport hospital, drive 15 minutes back. It was crazy. And that was just what he had done. He was on every other day, every other night for five years of residency. And the fact that I didn't have to do that, uh, and that there is a understanding from my professional organization, from my practice, from my partners that I need to have, you know, a well-balanced life has been critical. Hopefully it has for you too. It has. And sometimes you recognize that later in life because yeah. many of our mentors told us that if you want to do something, don't say no, they'll never ask you again. First of all, that's not true, but maybe your first five years, you want to say yes to as much as you can and then throttle back to the point where you can be more selective. I think that approach has worked for you pretty well. Yeah, I agree. So the last thing that I want to mention is this concept of imposter syndrome. And so I'm curious, uh, you've been doing this for a while. Was there a period of time that you felt you had imposter syndrome? I didn't know what it was called. Yeah. But I definitely had it and I still do get it. Like yeah. when you first asked me to do this podcast, I was like, why does he want to talk to me? What can I possibly share with all the esteemed erudite guests you've had in the past? Um, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's natural unless you're um, a narcissist that you don't feel it. And it's in different arenas, right? It's probably in arenas you're not as comfortable in, but you have to recognize that you feel it and try and overcome that. So for instance, let's just say you're not a very good public speaker. The only way to get better is deliberate practice. Yeah. Right? Um, the only way to get better at tennis yep. is deliberate practice, unless you're a natural talent. But I think everyone can practice. And so I think the best way of dealing with imposter syndrome is, first of all, the recognition of what are you feeling when you feel that way? Is it um, a sense of being flushed? Does your heart rate go up? Do you feel nervous and sweaty? Okay, now that you know what you feel like, what are ways to get those feelings under control? But anytime you're more prepared than unprepared, you're going to feel it less. Is yeah. my life experience. Yeah, I agree. And I think that there are going to be natural steps and on the surgical end, I think it's increasing complexity, right? So it was my first spine and then it was my first, you know, a hundred degree curve spine. And then it was my first VCR and sort of as you step up and, and I completely agree, you, you, you know, there's the, was it Superman pose, uh, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's the idea of, of, of pushing yourself to a point where you believe that you can do it, that you're adequately trained. And then for me, imposter syndrome is something that is continuously in my face, I feel like, but I've been able to get around it by realizing that I feel like I'm as well-trained as I could have put myself in. I mean, there are definitely great programs and programs that may have been better for me, but I feel like I achieved all of the knowledge that I should have during that period of training. 
that I know that I can do technically all of the procedures that I've signed a child up for, because otherwise I wouldn't have given them that, that option. And then focusing on the areas that I know are going to be the challenges. I mean, if you think again about a VCR, you know, I put in lots of screws. I've, you know, done lots of exposures. I've done a lot of corrections. And so even though I will never do as many VCRs as Larry Lenke, I've done 90% of the case, you know, hundreds of times. It's that one, it's that 10% that you really have to focus on. And that has helped me sort of get through so I can focus on the thing that's that's most challenging and really put my effort into planning for that. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot that comes to mind with just as I was listening to you is, um, you know, your comfort zone, but you've been able to expand that by bouncing up against the boundaries, Yes. going up to it, coming back, going up farther and coming back, going up even farther. Absolutely. Um, and then the, um, the deliberate practice takes uh, a skill that you were consciously incompetent at to unconscious competence. Yes. So let's take the VCR model again. You have to get to the point where you do the exposure and all the screws and you're starting a laminectomy and you haven't even broken a sweat yet. Yep. If you're stressed about the screws, yep. this case is not going to go well. Yep. You need to save your cognitive energy for the hardest part of the procedure. Yep. But it's only by doing those several hundred or thousand cases before that prepared you for this point. Yep. Yeah, I, 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 that's a, it's a, a great way to... To look at it. And I think one of the challenges that comes up, you know, as somebody who still practices relatively general is that there are, I mean, you you guys at DuPont probably see this more than anything. There are syndromes and skeletal dysplasias that I've never seen and that may see me once in my career. And those can be a little bit daunting, whether it be for a lower extremity reconstruction, a hip reconstruction or a spine reconstruction. And I think that you have to take what you've learned elsewhere and those skills and realize that with uh, oftentimes with some help from from a friend or from some guidance that you can sort of solve all the problems that that you know that you're facing in those situations yeah um and if i could go back to impartial syndrome mm-hmm. and what am i doing more of or trying yep. i think it's giving positive feedback to trainees and maybe younger colleagues hey that was great um i think positive feedback goes a long long way yeah um you know, we're evaluated all the time and we get negative feedback from patients and administrators and whatnot. Let's give some positive feedback to people in their formative years to really act as a stepping stone to go forward. Yeah. Because they're obviously feeling it. And um, I think if it's coming from someone that they're trying to model or respect, it's huge at the end of a long case or a day or a presentation or even a, a, a great thing at a meeting. Give some positive feedback and they'll come back uh, and do better. Yeah, I think that's a that's a, a great thing. I mean, I think that speaks a little bit to how IPOS has been so wildly successful is that we put a bunch of learners in a position and allow them to participate, like, for example, in Top Gun. And then they get po- they get they get a true positive immediate feedback in that situation. I think it's one of the reasons why it's such a popular course is that it's interactive from a learner standpoint and that they get that feedback from people like Sukhan Shah, who, uh, who they respect, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Sukhan, this has been spectacular. This is uh, honestly above and beyond what I was expecting. We've been talking for almost an hour and 15 minutes, and I can't thank you enough for this. I'm, I feel silly that I it took this long to, to actually get this together. But Well, this was great, and I, I, um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to ask you some questions. Because yeah. Because 
I'm sure many of the listeners want to know more about uh, what you like to do and stuff. So this was great. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, I hope that the rest of your meeting goes well. Actually, I did want to give you the ability to plug, which I've never had anybody get the ability to plug before. But so you've got a great meeting coming up in a couple of months. So for because a lot of people who listen to this will be hopefully coming. You got anything you want to tell? What I'd like to do is tell everybody that um, IPOS, the International Pediatric Orthopedic Symposium, that we run every year in Orlando this year from December 6th to December 10th is going to be a great meeting for everybody. And especially those of you who haven't been there in a while, there's always something for everyone at that meeting. And I want to, I want to emphasize that specifically this year, we're having an add on course for what we are calling the mid career orthopedic surgeon. And that's a very compact time at the end of the meeting, deliberately starting on Friday and ending on Saturday by noon. So you don't have to be there all week if you're in a busy practice. You don't have to feel like, hey, I thought this was a review course or a course for fellows. It's not. But this course specifically is going to gather a panel of experts to talk about leadership and strategy and difficult conversations and how to talk to the C-suite, billing and coding, be a better teacher, all kinds of things that, again, are really important once you've figured out the orthopedic stuff, but maybe need a little bit of help in other areas that we just never learned. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that part. I'm excited about the whole course. Yeah. I'm especially excited about the job the faculty does. To see the work and passion and commitment to that meeting from our volunteer faculty is just outstanding. So yeah. it's a pleasure to be a part of this meeting. But I think the mid-career course that we've planned for the end of the meeting is a great treat for everybody. Yeah. I asked you last night, how do you continuously innovate something that's been innovated for so long by such high-level people? But I think that this, a mid-career course is incredible. We tend to be the teachers and a little bit forgotten on the education side. And there's so much still to learn. And so I think it's great. I'm glad you guys put it together. Yeah. Yeah. We're looking forward to it. Hopefully... It'll be, it'll be a great success, but you can register through the POSNA website, either for the whole week or just the add-on course. That's so great. I encourage everyone to obviously stay from Tuesday to Saturday, but realize that's not practical for everyone. So we've offered this option. That's great. Well, Sukin, this has been awesome. Thank you for this. And uh, like I said, I hope you enjoy the rest of the meeting. Thank you, Nick.